Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. With me, as always, is David Gushy. How are you this morning, David? I'm good, Jeremy. How are you, my friend? Uh, pretty good. We're both pretty busy right now. Could you uh, give us an update on your speaking schedule? Sure. Uh, what have you been up to, and where are you headed next? Uh, the main thing is um, about every podcast in the world um, uh, talking to about the democracy book. Um, though nobody gets every chapter the way that we do right here on the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Um, and uh, in a few days, I'm heading overseas with my wife, and I'm um, speaking in England, Wales, Lithuania, and Germany. Um, in each place, I'll be talking about this democracy book and getting a chance to do some preaching, too. Fantastic. So it's, a, it's been planned for a long time, uh, and we're excited about it. I... I love that you get the opportunity to preach as well as do your academic work. I love the way those blend in the ministry that you've been allowed to build. The um, With our uh, seminary students, we had our, our class last night. We're about halfway through the semester with a crop of intro to Christian ethics students. And yeah. I, I don't know if they caught it. I tried to drop a note in the chat because I wanted... I want the students to notice that your your job is not preacher. David Gushy is an academic with multiple chairs teaching Christian ethics at graduate and up levels around the world, but you are preaching. They, yeah. These students need to know how to... They need to know how. They need to know the value of the homiletic expression. They need to have at least some rhetorical chops beyond writing a clear argument and having their their facts and their citations in order, they need to be able to connect the themes, the events, the scriptures, the tradition, and the heart of the church if they're actually going to affect Christian ethics. Yeah, um, it has gradually become clear to me over my career that a lot of what used to be done in seminary classrooms was we're going to teach you how to be an academic so you write long papers and you learn how to footnote and how to do the style guide and whatever right right um but what but we're training ministers and so and ministry i always say my first calling was to be a christian my second calling was to be a minister and my third calling was to be an academic and they built on each other and none of them canceled out the one before um i want i want these students to know how to communicate christian ethics from a pastoral perspective for the people of god and i do that myself so this coming sunday i'll be preaching in chipping camden england on climate change uh well what they wanted was me to talk about climate change i said i will i will preach texts and work my way to climate change and they said that was cool. And then the Sunday after that, I'll be in Vilnius, Lithuania. And my host wants me to speak about um, the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, something programmatic, he said. So preaching, uh, preaching is if I could be preaching every week, I would. I love preaching. And yeah. it's central to my calling. Me too. That's I, I talk about the sermon as my art form. Yeah. Yeah. The lecture is a different art form. I'll be doing plenty of those too, but yes. um, yeah, different rules. It's it, a different game. It is a different game. In fact, 
I never feel exactly in any other in any other communication setting how I feel when preaching. Well, that that's because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. The yeah. theologically, there is something that we believe is happening in that sermon moment between the prep and the delivery, and, and somewhere in the air between the speaking and the receiving, the Holy Spirit does something, and then it's received. Right. Any yeah. any preacher who has had, uh, I'm going to say three sermons. If you've preached three sermons, you've had someone come up to you after and thank you for saying something that you did not say that they <laughs> needed uh, that's sound. As well as sometimes if you preach 30 sermons, uh, somebody will say, you said something and it was not sound and it was not what you said. That could happen How too, did you but, hear that? Right. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so I, I, I want to say, uh, don't give up on preaching. Uh, and there is something about the sacredness of the task that continues to compel both of us, I know. Yep. The, uh, I had the opportunity this past week and I was back up in Atlanta, did a book event, preached at, check out Edgewood Church. That's an incredible church in Atlanta that should be a model for food desert, for inner city, for yeah. community building churches. Incredible ministry work there. Um, Love the church. And I uh, got to, I was working on a not right now media production. So keep them up, keep them busy. So this week, we are going to talk about, I think, let's see, what did you title the chapter? Because the chapter title on this was brilliant. It's, um, Yes, it does sound like I'm trying to keep my job. Uh, the Politics of Cultural Despair in Germany, 1853 to 1933. So we, we all generally know this story, right? The post, the interwar period, the Weimar Republic collapsing culturally and economically into despair, and a strong man being able to grab the reins. What, why do we need to hear this story again? Because the story has a longer arc than that. It doesn't begin in 1918. Um, it begins, I start this story 65 years before that, in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, I would first like to give proper credit to uh, uh, historian Fritz Stern, who wrote the book, The Politics of Cultural Despair, um, in 1961. Fritz Stern was a hero of my teacher, who once again gets a shout out, Glenn Stassen. Glenn uh, loved this book. Um, I think that part of what I'm doing in these historical chapters, Jeremy, is connecting the dots to our moment, mm -hmm. providing some handles for thinking about, about some of the toxic brew that is developing in our politics and i think the politics of cultural despair says a lot that phrase says a lot when a significant chunk of a population feels despair over the state of their culture um and, and then that despair gets mobilized politically. It can be very, very powerful. It's, it doesn't usually lead to <laughs> kind of peaceable, democratic tugging and pulling. It's a much more apocalyptic kind of feeling than that. 
Well, it's it's sort of on a micro level. It's a doomsday. It's an end of the world kind of feeling. This um, despair. Or at, least, at least it's on the way. Or anyway, deep sense of alienation from the way things are. Um, despair. That word also, which is a very powerful word, also signals hopelessness. Um, so in this chapter, I take the story back further than I've ever studied into the mid 19th century. Um, and I study three men who nobody who is listening to this podcast will ever have heard of. Let me say their names. Paul de Lagarde, Julius Langben and Arthur Muller Vandenbroek, who lived, um, in 19th century and uh, Moeller Vandenbroek made it to 1925. Um, Stern says that what these three men developed, uh, they were especially significant in developing what he called the Germanic ideology. Hmm. And um, this Germanic ideology, he also calls the national conservative movement at the time or the volkish movement that may be familiar if you studied nazism um and so what they had in common was a deep sense of alienation from mid 19th century or, or late 19th century or early 20th century germany which they derided as um insipid um you know, liberal. I wrote, here's one paragraph. This is what they, how they describe their culture. It's urban, industrial, and capitalist, and all of that is bad. It's commercial, materialistic, and bourgeois. It's secular, rationalist, and scientific. It's bureaucratic, democratic, and mediocre. <laughs> it's conflictual, pluralistic, and Jewish. Mm. There's the anti-Semitism. And above all, if Jewish is not the main word to use as a slur here, above all, it was liberal. So it, it the sense, am I saying this correctly? The, the angst there is that sort of bleed from continental liberalism and enlightenment stuff and Eastern... Yasidic Judaism had degraded what it meant to be German. Um, I think that that latter concept uh, um, was a little bit later, mainly. Um, uh, that was definitely a, a, a factor for Hitler. He, he was freaked out by encountering um, uh, Orthodox Hasidic Jews in Vienna when he was a young man, but that's not as much at play here for these guys. Okay. Um, it's, uh, well, all the, these terms communicate a lot. Um, people moving off of the farms and moving into the cities. Community moving from being local and like everybody knows everybody in the Communal. Village, communal to industrial, big cities. Uh, anonymity in the big in the big city. So m maybe from I'm just trying to make it as simple as possible. Yeah. From communal to transactional. Yes. Uh huh. Um, we became widgets and cogs rather than neighbors. 
Right. And there were a lot of people who were who were worried about that with the rise of urbanization, industrialization, modern capitalism and so on. Um, the uh, the loss of religious faith and the rise of secularism, the loss of a mystical sense and the rise of rationalism, um, the loss of theological certainty and the rise of scientific approaches to the Bible. Um, the the loss of the perceived loss of strong leadership and the rise of faceless parliamentary uh, democracy, which they considered mediocre. Um, the loss of organic unity and the rise of constant social conflict. Like this is symbolized by like capitalism and then Marxism emerging in reaction to Mar to capitalism, um, and the emancipation of the Jews. Uh, to be citizens along with the Christians uh, or people of Christian background. Um, so so uh, this ideology is described as reactionary. And remember, that's a main term in the book. It's reactionary. It's negatively reacting to all of these changes. And it's utopian uh, in that um, they're dreaming of a future even better than the past. It's a um, a forward-focused nostalgia? A forward-focused nostalgia or a backward-focused utopianism. Mm. <laughs> it's both. Um, and by the way, that dynamic of we yearn to build a society that will make X country great again, even though the society never really was this envisioned past, Um is something that I think is a very much a factor in our context as well. So are they wanting, they want a Kaiser, gnomes, farms, and ancient Germanic pagan flavored Christianity? Essentially, I, I, I named these, I named these factors. Um, uh, gnomes, folks, you heard it here first. <laughs> blood and soil. Uh, people connected to the land and of uh, German ethnicity, blood and soil, a, a phrase picked up by the Hitler, by the Hitler movement. Uh, they were strongly nationalist and imperialist. They wanted to make Germany great in that way. Um, they wanted social unity. They wanted Jews to be, quote unquote, put back in their place. Um, they wanted a strong man, a Kaiser, or in fact, one of them said a Fuhrer. Hmm. which is eventually what they got. Um, and on the religious front, what was interesting is these three men um, were not, they did not end up being traditional religious folks, um, but they, they wanted a version of Christianity that could help unite the German people. I call it Germanic, quasi-Christianity. It's ethno-tribal identity stripped of um, of Orthodox Christianity. And uh, anti-Semitism was a big part of that. Lagarde, for example, said what we need is a Christianity that is Germanic, nationalistic and heroic stripped of all jewish elements with a jesus whom all true germans could embrace let me read you a quote from lagarde he wrote this to divorce christianity and judaism even at this late stage 
would be a recognition of an unambiguous historical truth and of Jesus's own intent. Hmm. He was not the Messiah of the Old Testament. This inspired mortal, this transcendent religious genie of all human history had in fact been a conscious rebel against Pharisaic Judaism. When Jesus said, I am the son of man, he really meant I am not a Jew. The original act of rebellion should now be consummated. The Jewish past disavowed. So he was stripping the Jewishness out of Jesus. In the extreme. In the extreme. He wanted Jesus to be the uh, heroic Germanic figure. This is freaky, uh, heretical post-Christianity is what this is. So how is this relevant? Well, it helped to set the table for um, various movements in the 1920s and, and all the way into the early Hitler era that really liked this idea of an anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, Germanic movement that had a kind of a cultural Christianity that bore no resemblance to you know, Nicene Christianity um, that could unite the German people in in surging towards mystical national greatness and and um overcoming all all the disunity and squabbling of modern parliamentary democracy um and the thing that that had in common was what could be described as an anti-liberal nationalist politics anti-semitic anti-liberal anti-democratic Here's what uh, Fritz Stern says to conclude of these three guys. These men appealed to large segments of German society because they were idealistic and religious. For the Protestant academic classes had fused Christianity and German idealism so as to forge a cultural religion. The religious tone remained even after the religious faith and the religious canons had disappeared. Hmm. These men appealed to the religious sentimentality of some, to the genuine desire for religion of others. And then he writes of Lagarde, he pushed the idea of a national rebirth from a Christian to a secular mystical meaning. For his heroic program, he invoked God's sanction, avowing that God's will and the Germanic religion coincided. By the 1920s, the idea of a national or racial rebirth had become a poisonous weapon the more powerful because of its religious ring. So this laid the groundwork for Hitler, and this is the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll quote from Stern. Decades of political delusion had done their work, and many a conservative German shudderingly admired the terroristic idealism of Hitler's movement. The National Socialists gathered together the millions of malcontents of whose existence the conservative revolutionaries had for so long spoken. I write this, authoritarian reactionary Christian politics today in many lands also brings together political movements that offer a corrupted quasi-Christian nationalist religion bearing little resemblance to Jesus or historic Christian moral and political norms. So now it comes home. Now we're talking about us, not about Germany. What in, in this journey of putting this chapter together, what was new for you? Um, because you've you've done a lot of work on Germany, and specifically, this is earlier than most of your work because you're 
a lot of your yeah. works, uh, Rise of Hitler, a lot of your works, Holocaust. Well, I really had never gone much beyond the rise of racist anti-Semitism in the late 19th century um, in Germany. And in terms of the Christian fight, the church, the German church struggle, as it's called, I really picked up the story in the 1930s. The Kirchenkampf. You know, the, all that, right? Bonhoeffer and Bard and Niemöller and so on against the against the um, German Christian movement, which basically had this kind of version of Christianity. Um, so it was deeply satisfying slash alarming to discover that those ideas went back into the mid-19th century. So they weren't novel. Um, huh. Hmm? They weren't novel. They were not novel. And so you have a German Christian movement that is already there when Hitler comes to power. So he finds natural allies from the beginning. Um, and when I, now I'm really going to offend some people. When I look <laughs> at video of like some of the stuff that happens at, at classic Trump rallies back in the day, maybe a little bit now, with the prayers and the hand over the heart and the invocation of of Jesus and the you know the mix of nationalism and and uh, re religion, I, I I just hear the echoes. So so I say in the chapter, um, there are three paths to this in terms of Christians supporting this kind of quasi-Germanic or Germanic quasi-Christianity. Some Christians supported it because they knew exactly what was going on and they fully embraced this pagan brew. Other Christians supported it because they could no longer tell the difference between Germanic quasi-Christianity and real Christianity. Mm -hmm. And other Christians finally supported it because they weren't so much into the religion, but they embraced the politics that lay behind it. So to me, it's the second group that is most troubling in some ways. Christians who cannot tell the difference between Jesus, see faith, Sermon on the Mount faith, or Nicene faith, and quasi-Christian tribalism. If you can't tell the difference between those two anymore, then you're really in trouble. What's the, uh, that's where, where what's the antidote? Well, what, what the German church struggle leaders did what people like Bonhoeffer and Barth did was to was to try to remind people of what real Christianity looked like. They wrote it. They preached it. They they said, no, that's heresy and that's heresy. Oh, and that's heresy. Oh, by the way, that's heresy. Um, like the Bar Men Declaration was a statement of all the points of heresy that they were refuting. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and and then they resisted it by by Bonhoeffer, for example, by training pastors who could resist. A lot and, of people know, don't the, know that story of the uh, yeah. underground seminary up in the mountains. Yeah. First at the beach and then in the mountains. Underground seminary. Yeah. Um, you know, people who'd be able to tell the difference between Hitlerism and this whatever gloss on Christianity and Christianity itself. So theological clarity, uh, clear statements of resistance and training, training back in the way of Jesus. And there's an agenda for us for today. Yeah, the, well, I, th yes, but also 
I think about those men you mentioned, and they kind of lose. They either they end up exiled yeah. or dead, right? They lost. They lost. Well, it depends on how we define losing. They lost in that two-thirds of the Protestants of Germany um, and a lot of the Catholics went along and kind of came under the spell. Or maybe they didn't come fully under the spell, but they were not going to be brave enough to resist openly. And uh, it was it's always a minority that resists the powers that be. But yeah, Bart was exiled and lived out his life in Switzerland and Bonhoeffer was executed, you know, in 1945 and Niemöller was in jail for 12 years and a lot of people lost their lives. But but it's these people who we now look back on who preserved the integrity of Christian faith in Germany. Um, you don't have to win to do the right thing. There's a quote. Yeah. I think that's a good place to land the plane. Friends, thank you for listening today to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast as we continue this uh, this march through the Defending Democracy from its Christian Enemies uh, book. We are hoping that you are enjoying this. We're kind of thinking about this season as either teasers or companions. So if you haven't read the book, we hope that this gives you a taste of some of what's in it. Maybe it compels you to do some more research. Maybe it compels you to read the book. Or if you are reading the book, that this would be auxiliary. This is uh, your summer reading. This is your extra helps. So I'm enjoying the conversation. I hope you are too. You can find more information about both David and myself at our respective websites. They're easy to find. There are names. I, I think we behave the same way on social media. If you search our names, you'll find us. So we look forward to interacting with you. We look forward to hearing with you and uh, hearing from you and to having you with us on the next episode of the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>